last week, uh, Todd started our uh, new sermon series where we were going through the book of Hebrews, looking at the supremacy of Christ. Uh, and last week, Todd uh, reminded us that it has a high Christology, Christology, which is simply just a theology of Christ. And this week, we're going to move on to chapter 2, and we're going to see something that's uh, fundamental to our Christian faith. It's the dual nature of Christ and our call as Christians to fully embrace this dual nature of Christ that we're going to get into in a sec. Um, pastors often say controversial things from the pulpit, right? Sometimes just to say them, really rile the people up. This morning's no different. I'm just going to say it, okay? Parks and Rec is better than The Office. It's this. I'm sorry. It's just... Give me sunny optimism over edgy cynicism any day. I'm sorry. Those of you that don't know, Parks and Rec is a sitcom aired in the the mid-2000s starring Amy Poehler and Aziz Ansari, a few others. It's about a Parks and Recreation office for a town of Pawnee in Illinois. It's delightful. Whatever, I'm sorry. (laughs) One of the most iconic characters in the show is Ron Swanson, right? He's uh, the head of the Parks and Rec Department. Uh, He's he's kind of a funny characterization of masculinity and of men. Um, And often they use his character to highlight the absurdity of those traits, so some of the things about Ron that we should know, uh, he's only shed tears twice in his entire life. Once was when he was seven and hit by a school bus. And the second is when um, Sebastian died, uh, which is the town's miniature pony. Uh, he started working at a tannery at 11 while in middle school, calling it his dream job. He believes the government should be privatized and follow the business model of Chuck E. Cheese. Um, he enjoys breakfast meats, the work of Ayn Rand, uh, and he's an avid hunter, fisherman, and woodworker. Some of his chairs were award-winning. He knows various self-defense techniques. He's a very private person. He likes to be off the grid. No one knows the address of his house. Um, you know, if you've never seen the show, here, here's the picture that I would paint for you of Ron Swanson. Imagine him uh, mustachioed, a little burly, with a large stake in front of him, talking about the privatization of government with a glass of scotch in his hand. Like, this is that guy. But there's this complete other side of Ron Swanson that no one knows about. And one day, Tom, that's in Z's and Sorry's character, wants some dirt on him. So he goes to another coworker and says, I need some dirt on Ron Swanson. Do you have any? And he says, go to this bar uh, tonight and talk to Duke Silver. He's very close to Ron. He'll give you some dirt on him. So Tom goes to the bar, and he waits to see this Duke Silver, not knowing what to expect. And to his absolute shock, he sees Ron, mustache and all, in a suit, in a fedora, walk on stage with a saxophone. And he proceeds to speak and play in these sultry tones, and has the middle-aged women in the bar just swooning all over him. Tom, uh, his jaw hits the floor. He realizes that Ron is actually Duke Silver. That there's this whole complete other side of Ron, this libertarian, gruff, meat-eating and aloof boss who was moonlining as a saxophone player. But something really interesting happens. Uh, Tom goes up to him afterwards and confronts him about it. um, And he actually doesn't use this information to blackmail him. They call a truce on on the spot. And 
And there's probably a bunch of different reasons why, but I think the real reason is because Tom had a different and newfound respect for Ron. He saw him in this full light. He saw the softer side of him, a a full picture of of who he was. And it actually made him like him more. It, It drew him towards him. It humanized him in some way. He understood him better by seeing the totality of who he was. And this is exactly, I think, what the author of Hebrews wants to do for us. He wants to paint us a full picture of who Jesus is. He doesn't want us to miss out on the sweetness of the dual nature of Jesus. This dual nature is um, one of the greatest paradoxes of our faith. God became man. Throughout Scripture, we're shown over and over that our God isn't a distant God who turns a clock on fate and steps back and lets it unwind. No, we have a God who decided to enter into his own creation and become fully human. This is such rich theology, and we we read it in verse 14. It, It describes maybe his humanity better than anywhere else I've seen it. It says, Therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus shared in the same flesh and blood that we have that's coursing through our veins. He, he walked on this earth. He laughed and cried and put on clothes. He slept poorly some nights. He liked certain food and drinks. He had a personality. He was human. But he also stayed God. He was fully divine. Christ was two things at once, fully God, fully human. The fancy term for this is hypostatic union. And all that means is that these two natures, the humanity and the deity, were joined together in one person. That's all that means. Jesus. It's the personal union of the two natures of Christ. His humanity and his deity come together personally. So why does this matter? Why does the author of Hebrews talk about it for an entire chapter? Because it's super important, both theologically and personally. Jesus had to be human, and Romans tells us this, because sin and death entered through the world through one man. But, through Adam. But Paul goes on to tell us that the penalty for sin and death also has to be paid for by a man. So, only a human could pay the penalty for sin that humans caused. Jesus had to be human. And yet, he had to be fully divine because no human could ever defeat death. No human ever had the power to rise again from death. So God himself only has that power. So Jesus had to also be God. So this is so important from a theological perspective. But it also matters personally. If we only focus on Jesus' deity, which we are prone to do at times, here's what happens. We miss out on some very significant aspects of him. The temptation we'd focus on is power, his glory, his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And we'll miss out on the way he sympathizes with us. How he's experienced embodied life just like we have. How he has experienced grief and pain and temptation just like us. And it can make us, if we focus on his deity only, it can make us feel like he's distant. But if we focus only on his deity and not his humanity, we'll downplay his power and his holiness, his glory, and we'll miss out on the goodness of his character, his power to save, and the sweetness of a desire to be in relationship with us. What happens with this is we feel like Jesus is who we want him to be and not who he actually is if we only focus on his humanity. So this morning, we're going to 
we're going to correct this. And we're going to look at a full picture of Jesus and see what it means for us. Uh, and so when we realize this dual nature of Jesus, three things are going to happen. First, we're going to see that he sympathizes with our humanity. Christ sympathizes with our humanity. Second, we're going to see that all things have been subjected to him in his deity, in his divinity. So all things are subjected to Christ. And finally, we're going to see that he straightens our wayward hearts. He straightens our path. He keeps us focused. And the way we're going to do this is this passage is kind of broken up in one th- verses 1 through 4, 5 through 9, and 10 through 18. And I'm actually going to work backwards through this passage. We're actually going to start at 10 through 18, then we're going to go to 5, 9, then we're going to go to 1 to 4. And you're going to see why uh, in a second. 10 through 18 shows us a full breakdown of the humanity of Jesus and the way he sympathizes with it. And so we're going to frame it like he does in the text. Uh, the framework is this. Because he sympathizes with our humanity, we have a different understanding of suffering. We have access to intimacy. We have freedom from sin, and we have salvation. So intimacy, uh, freedom from sin, suffering, and salvation. Verse 10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author here is calling Jesus the founder of our salvation. But he says the way that he becomes that founder is through suffering. And the way we're brought to glory is also through suffering. So in other words, the only way that our sins are paid for, the only way we're able to get to glory with God the Father is through suffering. The way up is down. Jesus had to, be suffer, had to suffer so that we could be glorified. And verse 11 shows us that, that this is how we're sanctified or made righteous uh, through that suffering, even to the point of death. And then after that, Jesus claims us as his brothers. In Jewish literature, the idea of perfection that the author mentions here is applied at times to death as the completion or seal of life. So Jesus being made perfect through suffering talks, is talking more about his obedience to the mission that God had sent him on to death and to the cross, rather than some kind of uh, purity in action. Though we know that's true of him as well. So Jesus, to be complete in what he was doing in his mission, he had to suffer. But it's not just suffering, we're promised an intimacy. There's intimate language throughout all these verses, uh, uh, specifically using familial language. Look at verse 11. It says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Look at verse 12. It says that he'll call us by name. Verse 13, that he's given us to be his children. Verse 16, it reminds us that it wasn't for angels that he came, but for the offspring of Abraham. There's familial language all through these verses. He's saying over and over, I became like you so that you could be mine. Over and over, he reminds us that Jesus became man so that we could be part of his family. Most siblings that I know, we're going to get into this in a little bit, especially growing up, uh, they don't like to claim one another, right? And Jesus has every reason in the world to do the same with us, and yet he calls us his brothers. But it also means that the humanity of Jesus means that we have freedom from sin. Verse 11 says that um, it's our sanctification is found only in him that gives us the power to be free from sin, because he paid the penalty for it. Verse 14 says that he took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power that is the devil, and deliver all of us through fear of death that we are subject to the lifelong slavery it entangles. So 
what it's saying here is that sin is slavery. It entangles our day-to-day and the here and now. It, contem- it condemns us to death for eternity. But Christ became one of us so that he could pay that penalty, so that we could be free. Verse 17 said that uh, he has to be made like us in every respect so that he could be merciful and intercede for us. The humanity of Jesus means freedom from sin for us. But it's not just freedom from sin, but salvation. It means that we can be assured and have the utmost confidence that our salvation is secure in him. Uh, Verse 10 says that he's the founder of our salvation, like we mentioned. Verse 14 says that it was his death that defeated Satan. Verse 17 shows us that he had to be made human to be the propitiation for our sins. So my salvation and yours was only achieved because Jesus decided to become human, to walk among us. So when we look at the cross, we don't just see God sacrificing himself for us. We see Jesus as human, feeling pain, his lungs starting to collapse, the pain of the beatings he had experienced beforehand truly being felt, the spear entering his side to make sure he was dead. It wasn't just God on that cross, it was a human And it had to be. And verse 18 really shows that his humanity was necessary because uh, in it, he can sympathize with literally every single thing we go through, including our temptations. Now, I know this is theological in a lot of ways. And that's important for us to go through, but I don't want to leave us there. Think about the four things we just talked about. Suffering, intimacy, sin, salvation. These are all incredibly human things that we feel and struggle with all the time. And the humanity of Jesus is hope for us in each of these categories. Think about suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Perfection connotes wholeness, not purity, as we mentioned. So what I glean from this is that life in Christ is going to be marked by suffering. It just is. We should expect it. Jesus had to suffer the effects of our sin to be brought to completeness. It changes the framework of which we look at our personal suffering in general. Because often as modern people, we structure our lives or try to, to avoid suffering at all costs. We do everything we can to not suffer. And yet this passage maybe gives us a different view. Maybe in suffering, we are brought closer to Christ and to his life than we ever thought possible. C.S. Lewis said it best, Christ shouts in our suffering, but whispers in our pleasure. It's in our suffering that we hear the voice of Christ clearly. But also intimacy, right? Many of us here this morning probably struggle feeling intimate with Christ. I know I do. It's hard for me To not see Jesus as distant, far away, unconcerned with my life. But these verses paint a different picture. He walked this earth. He knows what it means to be human. He knows what it means to long for connection. To want to experience intimacy. To have grief, sadness, happiness. And because of that, he claims us as his family. Because he is like us. He looks at me and you... And he wants us to be a part of his family. Maybe if you feel distant this morning, you underplay his humanity and his desire for connection. 
I get the opportunity, uh, and to those boys that are here this morning, shouts to you guys, I get the opportunity to disciple a group of middle school boys every week. It's one of the highlights of my, uh, my uh, week every Wednesday night when I get to do it. Um, but a reoccurring theme from them that I also felt when I was their age and sometimes still do is that their siblings often think that they're annoying, right? Or that they annoy their siblings. We talk about this some. The message they hear is that they're unwanted by their siblings just by nature of being a middle school boy. No, no uh, shade to the older siblings of those kids. Uh, I was there too. Um, I know that we annoying. Um, one thing I have to constantly tell them, though, because of this, is that Jesus doesn't find them annoying. Even something as simple as that. He wants to be in relationship with them. They are valued and loved by him. But that's true of us too, right? Many of us think that we aren't worth intimacy with Christ. That he doesn't want to be with us. That we're unlovable in some way. Or that we're not worth his time or his relationship with us. But he does. He claims us as his own despite everything. Despite our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion against him. He became human so that he could win us back to him. So that he could be intimately in relationship with us. To understand everything we go through day to day. Don't forget that this morning. But it's not just intimacy. It's freedom. Have you ever considered that sin is uniquely isolating? When we engage with sin, it often brings about grief and shame and guilt. All of these things make us turn inward, feel those same things, like we're alone, unlovable, and like no one understands us. But the hope of these verses is that even in our sin, even in our temptation to sin, we're not alone. Jesus doesn't just love us in the midst of it, though he does. He sympathizes with even the temptation to sin, as these verses show us in verse 18. He experienced the same temptation to lie that you do. He experienced the same temptation to lust that you do. He experienced the same temptation to gossip that you do. He experienced the same temptation to overindulge like we all do. He experienced these longings and these temptations and desires just like we do every day. And he promises us freedom from it. Because he's experienced that temptation, and because he died, he promises freedom from it. You are not alone. If you want true freedom from those things that entangle you, turn to Christ. He wants to bring you to freedom. And finally, it assures our salvation. His humanity does. This passage reminds us that when we look to the cross, we see our sin paid for. We should see all of those things I just mentioned. Our lies, our lust, our gossip, our deception, our brokenness there. Where we should see ourselves, though, instead we see him. We see the God become man, taking our penalty even to the point of death. An ancient scholar, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this. What has not been assumed cannot be restored. What has not been assumed cannot be restored. Christ had to become man so that we can be restored fully. And if he did, our salvation is assured, no matter what. 
This is the reason we're Christians. This is the sweetness of the gospel. That no matter what we've done, Christ died so that we could be saved. Suffering, salvation, intimacy, and sin are all seen in a new light when we look at the humanity of Jesus. But it's not just his humanity, right? The dual nature is also his, du- his deity. This that dual piece. And so when we focus only on his humanity, we see that he sympathizes with us. But when we look at his divinity, that he's fully God, we see that all things are subjected to him. And so we're working backwards. So now that we are in verses 5 through 9, and there's this interesting interplay going on here about subjection. Specifically, who has dominion over the world? Who rules the world, these verses ask. And the first question is, is it the angels? And in ancient uh, Judaism, there was this belief that angels had been placed by God over the nations in the world. And this goes back to an interpretation of Deuteronomy 32. Um, But the author of Hebrews is actually spending a good amount of time dispelling this notion, both in this chapter and the one that Todd preached on last week. The world is not for the angels to rule, as verse 5 shows us. So who has dominion over it then? Well, verse 7 makes it seem like humanity does, to rule the world. It says it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And scholars really do have a different interpretation of these verses. And something uh, he's talking about, um, Genesis 1, hearkening back to the cultural mandate to take the world, have dominion over it, and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply This would elevate our role of mankind in the work of caring for the world. Other scholars identify Son of Man here as Jesus, hearkening back to the moniker that was used of him often in the gospel, Son of Man. And in this interpretation, the author of Hebrews is portraying the subjection of all things in heaven and on earth to Christ. That for a time he was made even lower than the angels so that he could accomplish what needed to be done. So what is it? Not to take the easy way out and the Men's Bible says he's going to laugh at me for this. But it's both, right? We do have agency in our role in the world. We are God's hand and feet, tasked to care for it, to be agents of blessing as far as the curse is found. But ultimately, all things are subjected to God who became man and walked among us, who died so that all that was wrong can be set right again. So think about it this way. We only fulfill our role as agents of God's kingdom when we submit and subject ourselves to him. It's both. This is why verse 8 and 9 says this. Putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels. Crowned with glory. Namely Jesus. In honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Nothing is outside of his control. All things subject to him. There is that tension that we see here. We often see it in the New Testament of the already and the not yet. It's the idea that death has been defeated but not completely destroyed. The war is won, but the battle is still being waged. We're in the in-between time. Christ has come. All things are subjected to him. But we only see it in part. The rest is still to come. We have a taste of what is to come. So what can we possibly glean from this? I think two things. First, we must submit our lives to Christ. And second, we rest in that tension of the already and not yet. 
People ask um, us pastors often, um, how do I know if I'm following the will of God in my life? How do I know? How do I know if I'm in his will? And the answer is, we don't really have an exact answer. But we do have this answer, and I think it's the right one. It's this. Submit your desires, your wants, and your plans to Christ. Let him, let the truths of Scripture, and let the gospel be the guiding principle for every decision you make. That's when you will be in the will of God. It's if you, when you're making every decision, every plan, you put Christ in his will, in his way, in his truth first. It's the first step to aligning your heart with his. Because all things are subject to him. So for us to even begin to align our lives correctly, we must align them with his rule, his character, and his truth. So the times in my life that I felt the most rudderless, confused, or overwhelmed is when I put my plans and my desires first before submitting them to Christ. When we do that, things do become clear. And even if, we, if they don't become clear, at least we know we have rightfully submitted ourselves to the king of the universe. But second, and though he, uh, all things are subjected to him, he rules over it in glory, these verses remind us it's not fully realized yet. And it won't be until he returns. So as Christians, we can expect to constantly be living in that tension. The tension that we have freedom and hope and grace in Christ, but that our lives will be longing for more. Our lives will have persecution. They'll be marked by suffering. We'll struggle with sin in our own wayward hearts. We will not always align our will with Christ and his kingdom. We'll fail to measure up. That's why grace is so important. Because we are going to fail and struggle. But if Christ isn't on his throne, where's our hope? If Christ isn't God with the power to defeat death and defeat sin, where's our hope? We don't have any. But he is fully God. And he does have that power. And we can rest in that. If Jesus is fully God and in control over the universe, we can take rest in the fact that we aren't. That's actually an incredibly freeing thing. If he is fully God, he is in control, and we can rest that we aren't. Because when we fail, he won't. When we miss the mark, he's unable to. When our plans fall through, his kingdom never fails. When we're exhausted and overwhelmed, he's strong and in control. And when we fail, his power has no bounds. When we despair, his grace is new for us every day. The fact that the fullness of deity rested on Jesus Christ is our basis for hope in this life and the next. And of course, um, that brings me to my final point, of which we have no time for. So I'm not going to go for it. I'll go over it briefly, just to tie it into our conclusion. Deal? Just a little bit. When we fully realize the dual nature of Christ, he keeps our path straight. And we know this. Our proclivity is to do the opposite. Hebrews says that um, we must pay close attention to the message or we'll drift from it. The nuance of this is like a ship drifting because of strong winds or currents. 
into the wrong port. It's like a strong wind or current comes and drifts the ship into a wrong port. We have a proclivity to wander, to drift, to be pulled away from what? The message of the gospel. There's an adage in communication theory that says effective communicators do this. They keep the main thing the main thing. They keep the main thing the main thing. And our proclivity as Christians is to not keep the main thing the main thing. Often, we lose sight of the gospel. We drift and we wander. And there's this funny thing about Ron Swanson. See, I told you we're going to the conclusion. He has this checkered past with women. He constantly fell for and married abusive and domineering women. And it's only in later seasons that he finds a normal... He he gets to a place where he realizes, I should marry a normal, healthy, and loving woman. And when they get serious, one of the first things he does is take her to a jazz club. And he reveals his full nature to her. He becomes Duke Silver. And he lets her see it. He purposely shows her this other side of him. He knew that she needed to know who he was fully. He didn't want to harm her. And that's the flip side of this sermon from this passage. It's not just that we have to realize the dual nature of Christ because he's revealed himself to us in that way. It's that he wants us to see the fullness of who he is. He wants us to embrace his humanity and his deity, not just parts of him, not just the parts we like, his full humanity and his full deity. That's how we stay on the main thing. That's how we don't drift. We keep the main thing the main thing. This is what, as Christians, we will not negotiate. We cannot drift from. It's the message of the gospel. And I, want, I think it's worth us naming as we end today. Let us never drift from the message that the world, that the earth is God's, that he created it to be good. To be his, to be our home, and to steward it and have dominion over it. And let's tell the world that the sin and evil that is in it is not a result, uh, it is a result of our wrongdoing. That the problem in the world is not just out there, but it's in here. That all our ways are broken and Christ and his goodness did not leave us there. That God came down, he walked among us, became fully man, but fully divine, went to the cross willingly to pay the penalty for our sins, my sin and your sin, and all the sin that plagues his creation. That there isn't one square inch in the world that Christ and the fullness of his humanity and deity doesn't claim to be his. And he rose again to be exalted at the right hand of God the Father to one day return to judge the living and the dead, to bring his kingdom, to right all that is wrong, to restore his good creation to what it was always meant to be and more. From the garden to the city, here, a new Jerusalem, a new creation. This message, this gospel, is something we can never drift from, we can never let go, we have to keep it the main thing because it is the main thing. In our age of polarity and disunity, information and disinformation, we must cling to that. For Hope Chapel to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city, we have to cling to this message and keep it the main thing. Room for discussion about different applications of scripture and orthopraxy, but my encouragement to you is this. Let the message of the gospel be one we never apologize for or drift from as we embrace the fullness of who Christ has revealed himself 
to be to us as a church. Amen.